Welcome, everyone. This is Adam Coleman. And with me today, we have Kelly Nelson returning to the podcast. Kelly is a certified financial planner and founder of Brava Financial in San Diego. Today, we're going to be discussing estate planning and the key items for people to consider there. So Kelly, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. Well, jumping right in, can you tell us a little bit about your role as a financial planner in the estate planning process? Sure. As a financial planner, what I really consider my job to be is to make sure that a client has looked at and taken care of every aspect of their financial plan, both while they're around, when and if they might become incapacitated, and then once that estate passes on to the people that they want to pass their their estate on to. So I'm very aware of the need for those documents. I don't draft them, but I do encourage my clients to make sure that whatever their wishes are, that they have gone through the process of making sure that those wishes are documented and will be carried out when the time comes. And I've helped clients not only move through that process as far as getting those documents in order, but also have helped loved ones settle estates. And so I have that perspective of both the sort of before and after picture. What other professionals do you collaborate with during the estate planning process? Obviously, the estate attorney is the major one, but are there any other players? Sure. So depending on the complexity of the situation, there might be a CPA involved. Certainly, I think, Adam, from the standpoint of lending, a lot of people may be under the the misconception or the idea that somehow having debt or a mortgage as part of their overall mix somehow helps them from an estate planning standpoint. And while that might be true in terms of the net worth of the overall estate, again, having this team approach where we're all looking at the entire picture together and collaborating on what the best next step is for the client, I find that having that team rather than just the client relying on one trusted advisor is a much better approach. Now, having said that, one trusted advisor is better than none. And it's certainly better than TikTok, in my opinion. <laughs> so. And I guess sort of in a related topic there, not to that extreme of getting advice from TikTok, but there are some online sites that are cheaper for all intents and purposes than going through an estate attorney. And there's like, Wealth.com, I think, Trust and Will is another one, LegalZoom. Yeah. What's your thoughts on those? And have you used them before or do you typically steer towards an actual estate attorney? So my advice to a client is always to work with a qualified attorney on any kind of legal issue. Now, having said that, I have worked with clients who have very simple, straightforward cases and Quite frankly, they were turned off by the price. You know, they just couldn't get over the fact that they were looking at somewhere between $2,500 or $4,000 to work with an attorney to draft documents. So for those clients as a plan B, if you will, as long as the situation is very straightforward and in the cases that I've worked with clients on, it's been either a couple with no kids or a single person with no kids. And so 
those folks did use an online service. And I did look at the documents that came out. And my opinion was that the documents were fine, but they were not as tailored and as elegant as an estate planning attorney. And so the way I look at it is it's almost like buying a suit off the rack versus having a tailored suit. There's a big difference. And so what I like to encourage people to do, and particularly here in California, Adam, as you'll realize and know very clearly that if you own property in California, you need to have a living trust, right? Because it's very difficult to go through probate in California, state by state, big differences. So really that's the thing that I encourage people to do, which is get, get a living trust, get your home or your other real estate into that living trust so that you can avoid probate. And hopefully at some point down the future, once people have the basic documents, you can always take those documents and have a lawyer review them and update them later on. So again, something is better than nothing. And the other comment that I'll make is even people without documents have an estate plan, but it's the state's plan, right? Right. If you die without documents, the state has a plan for you, but that may not be in accordance with the client's wishes. So that's the important thing that I try to help people understand is know what your options are. And then if the state plan is not to your liking, let's figure out how you get the documents in place to fulfill your wishes. And that's similar advice from what I've seen as well. So very simplified plans. You can sometimes do them online, not a lot of handholding. You're doing a lot more DIY, you know, keeping track of everything, which could open up a can of worms down the road if you do something wrong, obviously. In my experience, everybody thinks they're simple. So that's another thing that I really work on educating people because they'll show up and they'll say, look, my situation is not that complex. I'm really simple. And then come to find out they've got an operating business. They've got rental real estate out of state. You know, it's a second marriage. There are kids from different relationships, but it feels very simple because you're living your own experience. And so simple to me is one person, no children, their house and their other assets. And that's pretty, pretty much it. Right. No business, no additional real estate, things like that. Yeah. And and that was actually going to be a next question was kind of, we we all do think that our situation is simpler than it really is beyond children. What makes it not so simple? And you hit that nail on the head. So even if you think your situation is simple, talk to an expert first (laughs) to make sure that it truly is simple. And then you can go down that path because the problem that I've seen before with some of these online sites or talking with other estate attorneys is that if you go through one of those sites, a lot of times, if it's not done well, and you still have to get an estate attorney involved, it hasn't really saved you time or money because a lot of times they'll still have to redraft everything. They almost have to start from scratch because they don't trust what the online sites are providing or they just want to get involved heavily on their side either way. But a lot of times you you want to start and finish with the same estate attorney, whether it's online or the physical person, you don't want to jump back and forth between attorneys in a lot of cases. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, it is. But again, I recognize that not everybody's ready to take action that feels recommended or optimal at the time that we need to get something done. So again, flexibility, the ability to 
pivot and find what's a good fit, even if it's not the best fit. So yeah, I do agree in the, in the, in the long run, it might be a more expensive proposition, but again, certainly here in California, avoiding probate to the best of a client's ability is really what we want to focus on. And I'll share another interesting aspect of the estate planning piece and having that trusted team in place. I worked with a client who is an author and she went through the estate planning process and she gave permission to the estate planner to talk to me and say, Hey, can I send you the documents? And here's what we're thinking about. Is there anything that I'm missing? And I said, well, surely she told you about her royalties. And there was this long pause (laughs) and the attorney said, royalties? (laughs) No. (laughs) And so again, client is simple. Client doesn't really think about all of these aspects of their lives in the way that we do. But that was something that the attorney was really grateful for. And that was something that, again, she would not have known to really inquire about. So that mastermind approach of having multiple professionals, I think really did a great service to the client. And that's a good point. And that kind of goes back to the online version versus the attorney. In this case, it's even more important to have somebody beyond the attorney as well, because obviously the online sites are not going to ask every single question that is available. And in this situation, the attorney wasn't even able to uncover that. So having the financial planner involved as well is hugely vital because that could be a massive change in what her wishes were, obviously, for her estate. So, Well, good. Well, I know a lot of people are guilty, myself included, of waiting longer than they should to set up their estate plan. What do you think are the first steps for somebody who hasn't set up their estate plan yet? So I'm going to make a distinction between people who have children and people who don't have children. So I think for people who maybe don't have children, again, it's sort of this, I'm simple. I don't have a lot going on. I can, I can transfer all of my assets through either beneficiary designations or through a transfer on death, a TOD Mm -hmm. designation. And that's true. And so a client who has gone through that process Again, they do have an estate that will transfer to named beneficiaries, but that is a process that isn't as flexible as having a trust. The reason I differentiate between clients who don't have children and those who have children is that in my experience, the biggest hurdle to getting parents to do an estate plan is not so much how do we want our stuff to go, it is who will look after our kids if we're not around. And that is usually the brick wall that spouses can't quite reconcile. And it's a very difficult conversation. My husband and I struggled with it. He had very strong opinions. I had very strong opinions, but we talked it out and worked it out and were able to get through that. But I realize that it's very challenging. And I also tell my clients who have children, when you do your estate plan, pick your guardian and then pick someone who is going to handle the finances for the child or the children, make them two separate people. 
Because you have checks and balances, right? Because then you'll have someone who's looking after the health and welfare of the child. And you'll have essentially the CFO who is providing the financial support for the child. And again, this is not because people can't be trusted to do both. But I just think that those are two very different responsibilities and should be separated. Have you seen specific examples where that has helped or the opposite has been detrimental to people? So when you have a caregiver, when you have somebody who is either caring for children or caring for a parent, and that person is also in charge of the finances, particularly if there are other beneficiaries, it can start to get very challenging when money is being spent for the parent or the child, but there's also some benefit perhaps to that caregiver, right? And that's where, again, in the absence of super clear communication or a division of, of responsibilities, you can start to see resentment build up. Like we're adding on to so-and-so's house to build out either the children or mom, their own suite. And it's coming out of the money that ultimately would go to other beneficiaries. So to me, having that separation just keeps everything a little bit more formal, I guess is the word, but also just less fraught emotionally. Are there safety measures that you recommend as part of the trust to help avoid that if you did have the same person or needed to have the same person handle the finances and the guardianship? So that's a great question. I don't have specific recommendations in terms of how to do that inside the document. But what I can say is that to the extent that the team gets together and sort of thinks about, okay, if this happens, then this, and kind of walks through and almost goes through the process of, okay, how does this unfold? You just naturally start to catch those places where, oh, well, what happens if so-and-so decides to resign or isn't available to do the job or who's next, who's next in place? Mm -hmm. And frankly, the situations that I've seen that have really been the worst were not a result necessarily of the documents and how they were drafted. It was either a lack of communication or miscommunication between all of the people involved. I think, again, you can have documents that are really well drafted, but we're all human beings and we all come with our feelings and our baggage and it can get messy sometimes. Well, and that was sort of the reason for the question is to avoid some of that miscommunication or whatever the differences are between like the trustee, whoever's handling the financial piece, the CFO, like you said, and then the guardian. Is there a way to bridge that gap a little bit better so that there isn't that miscommunication where it is more cut and dry of, all right, we've got this trust set up where it's distributing X amount of dollars every single month or whatever, you know, where it's not this open-ended, oh, here's 
a million dollars, use it however you want, things like that. I didn't know if there were specific steps that you've seen people take to avoid some of that miscommunication. So there's language that can be put into the trust, but also, and I think that this is an overlooked technique, is that you don't have to rely solely on the trust. So for instance, in my situation with me and my husband, we can also write letters of intent to accompany the trust. And so we have the trust, but we can also write, here are our wishes. This is really what we're thinking about. This is how we would like to see things unfold. And so that can be taken into consideration by the trustees, whether those trustees are family members or whether they're professionals. And certainly, again, in California, we have a lot of private fiduciaries who do tremendous work on behalf of clients. And those private fiduciaries are uh, professionals, and this is what they do. And so you can provide guidance that can accompany the documents. I've even had experience with clients who have taken the time to do video recordings, right? To express their intent and Mm -hmm. share what they're feeling and really what their wishes are as an accompaniment to the documents. And not necessarily a rule for them to have to follow more of a guideline, but obviously the intention is for them to to follow the wishes. That's the whole point. Exactly. So what specific ways can you as the financial planner help clients with the estate planning process, mostly from a financial standpoint to preserve wealth for future generations or specific financial goals? What's your role in that process? So the first role is really to get the client to take the steps to get whatever documentation they need. So again, My role as the financial planner sometimes can be persuasive because, again, I'm not being compensated on connecting a client with an attorney and getting that process done. If I'm standing here saying, look, this is really important and here's why and really helping the client understand that, that might help them get started and get that taken care of. And then the second thing is, again, and a lot of estate planning attorneys will tell you that even after a client has documented their wishes and they have an estate plan, they don't necessarily put everything in the trust. They don't retitle accounts. A lot of attorneys will do retitling of property, but they don't necessarily go through the process to take care of investment accounts or other assets. And so, again, Part of a financial planner's process is typically to make sure that once the documents are in place, everything gets properly titled. And then making sure that periodically those documents are being reviewed, especially in light of any major life change, anything that would impact. And again, I've had these situations where I've helped clients redefine what it is that they want to articulate in their documents because families change, emotions change, people come into your life, they leave your life. And so I've seen things happen in ways where it all went according to plan. And then I've also worked with beneficiaries who said, oh, wow, I was estranged from this person. We hadn't talked in 30 years and 
I guess I'm getting a multi-million dollar inheritance. Well, what are the major things that you would recommend people check? And is it more of like an annual review that you typically do to make sure, all right, have you changed, opened new accounts? We need to retitle those. Have you bought any properties? We need to make sure that those are titled. What are the major checklist items that you go through with people on just the estate planning review? Yeah. So the documents themselves should really be reviewed probably every three years, just, but again, that's what's in the document. But to your point, Adam, once a year, just going through that checklist and saying, okay, has any property been bought or sold? Have new accounts been opened? Has anything changed interpersonally? Usually if a beneficiary passes away, that's not necessarily a trigger to do anything because usually a well-drafted trust will accommodate for a beneficiary predeceasing the trustor of the trust. Right. It's something along the lines of a divorce or a disinheritance or something along those lines where you just want to sync up the documents to reflect what the client's wishes are. Gotcha. And the major things that they need to focus on, obviously, are if they go the trust route, again, this is the assumption, especially in California. I know that's always the, the go-to, yeah. not every state, but assume that they do have the trust set up with an estate plan. The main things they have to focus on would be any accounts, investment accounts, checking accounts, savings, retirement, stuff like that. And then properties, anything else in addition to that, that people should really focus on to remember to put into the name of the trust. So one thing that, and if you have an insurance expert that you bring on to the podcast, this would be something to definitely talk to that insurance expert. Mm -hmm. But my understanding is a minor should never be named as the beneficiary of an insurance policy. And often particularly with younger families and you have spouses who have pretty significant term insurance policies, they generally mm -hmm. don't name a trust as the beneficiary. They name each other and then maybe name the kids or the child or what have you. And naming a minor as the beneficiary of an insurance policy is, from what I understand, you essentially need to go to court to have a guardian who's not the parents established, a guardian guardian ad litem in order to have the insurance. The insurance company will not write a check to a minor. They just won't. Okay. And so it's a whole process. And so um, things like that, right? So the things that we normally think, oh, you don't have to worry about the trust because it's got a beneficiary designation like right. insurance, like retirement plans. There are these times when it's worth checking with an expert to say, is this really the way we should do that? And so in that case, where maybe there are three minor children and spouses, you take that term policy, you name the other spouse as the primary, and then name the trust as the contingent. Right. Okay. That makes sense. It's logical, but I don't think a lot of people would probably do it that way. They'd probably forget and just think, oh, I just need to name my children as the subsequent beneficiaries. So that's, that's good advice. I guess yeah. what other estate planning strategies from a financial standpoint, do you recommend when transferring assets? Obviously the tax liability stage is the really big consideration with a lot of these things. What are the things and the key considerations that you have as the financial advisor when you're going through that process? 
So in all candor, what blows up in a state is when beneficiaries start to fight and then they lawyer up and then the attorneys end up the only ones who are smiling because they get paid. And so when you have a state settlements that go to litigation, that's hugely damaging. It's hugely damaging, not only from a financial perspective, but also from just an emotional perspective. And so again, the documents are important. The titling is important. The taking time to say, okay, if I pass away, this happens. If my spouse then passes away, this happens. Is this the way that we want it to go? And just do that periodically. But it's also, from my perspective, I feel it's incumbent on me to also take the temperature of how the relationships operate within families. I want to know if my clients are not on speaking terms with a child or with one of their children, or if there are other issues that can create difficulties or resentments or whatever. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to solve them. But I am absolutely going to take that into consideration in terms of the advice that I give my clients. And that might be needing to tweak the documents a little bit. It might mean having the courage to have difficult conversations and see if people can reach accords or come back together. And if they can't, then there's certain planning, there's some planning techniques that can be implemented. But the great destroyer of wealth is not bad documents. It's unhappy people. Do you see that come up too often when there is a trust set up with pretty clear wishes involved? Yeah, trusts get litigated all the time. An asset in the trust, one beneficiary wants to sell it, another doesn't. You have people who feel that they should have gotten more because they were the caregiver of the parent. Mm -hmm. There's just all sorts of stuff that can come up. And this stuff comes up because people grieve. You know, it comes yeah. up because people are dealing with the loss of someone. And my sense and my experience tells me that if you can have conversations with loved ones before that time frame, you can do so much to mitigate that emotion and those reactions that come out when people are grieving. If all people have to do is grieve, they don't have to fight over money at the time that someone passes away, that to me is a huge win. Right. It doesn't have to be the movie cliche of people just finding out at the time of what they're going to get off of the will. Like this conversation <laughs> should happen long before anything happens. And then there's not nearly that much issues after the fact. Yeah. So that's good advice. Yeah. Any other common challenges or complexities that you find going through the estate planning process that people should be aware of? I think people sometimes feel like it's going to be a bigger deal than it really is. Yeah. I think people are often pleasantly surprised if they're working with somebody who is proficient and a professional, the documents are really not that difficult. And again, a planner like me can really help lay the groundwork and have some of these preliminary conversations before it's time to go in and see that attorney. Do you have any recommendations related to 
specific attorneys that you would recommend? Do you think there needs to be some thought process going into how long they've been an attorney, how long they plan to be in a state attorney? Do they have a succession plan in place? Things like that. You obviously have to think much longer term in these types of things than you would for just some random other legal issue. The only hard and fast rule that I have with respect to estate planning attorneys is that I will only recommend attorneys who have both an estate planning aspect to their practice and estate settlement. And the reason is because that shows that attorney how well their documents hold up during the settlement process. So if it's an attorney who just drafts, I'm unlikely to send clients their way because I feel like the attorney who does both, it has really got the perspective that clients need. Right. Well, and they haven't just washed their hands of it and just let somebody else deal with the problems that they might've created with that documentation. So no, that's, that's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I know we're, we're running out of time here shortly, but if people want to learn more about you and the services that you offer, what's the best way to find you? The best way to find me is my website, which is bravafinancialplans.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can find me, Kelly Nolson, or Brava Financial. I have my company on LinkedIn as well. So Perfect. I'll include all those in the captions so that people can track you down, certainly. This has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time, Kelly. So this is super helpful information. Hopefully, people get some value out of it and get the process started if they've been waiting for it. It's not the worst thing in the world. So the sooner they get started, the better. So I agree. Well, perfect. Well, thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Adam. 